a couple of things I want to say and then get into this sort of mini-series. I've been talking the last twice about really intimacy with the Holy Spirit and us learning that he fully dwells in us. <laughs> and and the, the whole personality, the heartbeat of God himself has taken up residence inside you and me. And, 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 and this is the, the scariest way to illustrate it, but it illustrates it. Is just imagine that my whole heartbeat, personality, thoughts, feelings and mind, you're all looking at me. Say it leapt out of me and took up residence in you alongside your thoughts, feelings and isn't, well, that's exactly what God says he's done. As we just taught our way through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the heartbeat, the very essence, the innards of Father has come to live inside of you by the Holy Spirit. And, and last week we kind of looked at that, but well then why, you know, he's awesome, he's powerful, he's mighty, he's all-knowing, he's, why doesn't he just take over? Because he could. You know, he's running the universe in his, well, he doesn't sleep, so he doesn't run the universe in his sleep, but yeah. if he did sleep, he'd still be running the universe. Let's not go there. But the point <laughs> is, he's getting a lot done, and he's not stressing out. He's completely able in terms of ability, power, authority to run your life, and you just sort of have nothing to do with it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't take you over. And I was thinking about that <laughs> I'm just, I'm just so proud of uh, our Hope School of Supernatural Life that it is looking at a sixth year that already we have a dozen inquiries about that school and it doesn't start till September. The culture of that school really represents well what we're in, in a sort of a smaller or a more intense setting, what we're trying to build here. There's freedom, there's transformation, there's, uh, there's teaching, there's encounter, there's leadership. We keep raising up new leaders. I mean, Karen's doing a phenomenal job. She was on, you were on first, the first year we ran it, weren't you, Karen? So she's come right the way through to be school director. Uh, I started it, then Jan McFarlane led it. And it, so within a five-year, we've raised up. It's just a, a massively good environment. If you've not been in it, get on board. It's a great ride. Um, and, and, and it's just so good. It's just so good. And this morning I was thinking, what? Do you ever have this thought like, why have I come to church? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a leader here and I have those questions. He's like, why do we do this? Do, do, do you ever do that? It's just like, why, do we, why are we doing this today? And, and, and I have, I have a, a big collection of answers, which would take all morning to talk about. It's really just vital. But one of the things I've often said is this is meant to be training for the week. So our impact is not measured by how many bums we put on our seat in here on a Sunday morning, but it's our kingdom, kingdom footprint into the highways, byways, the, the, the offices, the buildings, the schools, the universities, wherever you are, what you're releasing of the kingdom of heaven is the impact of this community. And what happens in here is to release you, refresh you, equip you, inspire you to do more of that when that happens in your life tomorrow. But the other thing that we want, the other thing that's like cries in our heart and I believe beats in the heart of the Father because he keeps saying it to us in different ways is that this is a place where we expect that anything can happen. That momentum builds in this environment and I believe that the gathered church builds momentum for faith, for breakthrough in a way that that just you on your own or you in a small group or a house group 
can do in part, but as a corporate faith, things happen. And it's just so much in the heart of the leadership here that we're believing when you show up, you will walk out changed just because he is here and you showed up. Bodies get healed. We've seen it happen. Bodies just get healed. You know, nerve endings get changed. Also, breakthrough happens in your finances. Relationships happen. Hearts get healed up. All kinds of stuff just happen because he's here. And we love that song that, you know, when he walks into the room, everything changes. And, and we experience that and we want to experience that more and more and more because that means I just always want to be where he is. Well, I do. <laughs> the, <laughs> thinking about, this kind of fits in with what I'm talking about, the worship, I was thinking, ah, it's so good, people are shouting. But it's really good if you don't want to shout, you don't have to shout. But don't get upset with people who do shout. And if you do shout, don't get upset with the people who don't shout. It's okay to lie on the floor. It's okay to be statuesque in his presence. It's okay to shake till your feet, your feet fall off and your teeth fall out. You have permission. And if you're shaking till your teeth are falling out, you know, we're not judging the people who are statuesque and the statuesque ones. We're not judging the people whose teeth have just fallen on your head. <laughs> You know, if, you, if we want to express with waving a flag, that's glorious as you don't take anybody's eye out, then you know, we're considering others, but that is just a glorious expression of worship. If you want to sit and just gaze on the glories of God, that's also great. Everything counts. Everything's precious. Everything's powerful in worship. The only ugly thing is when it becomes judged by those who aren't doing what you're doing. Yeah? And that kind of neatly slides into, in a kind of uh, DJ sort of segue way into the message this morning. <laughs> Our scripture was, I never even tried to be a DJ, you can tell why. So Matthew 11 is where we kind of landed last time, and this is where, where we, we're, if you, if you imagine a message is like an aeroplane ride, and you get, out on, you get in the aeroplane, which means you showed up, now we're on the runway, okay? And eventually we'll take off, we're getting there, right? and at some point we'll land, hopefully we'll have a good landing, and we won't just fall out of the sky, which if I run out of time, that may be what happens, because we just want to give it a space for the, the Bethel team just to release some words of knowledge and... Release some healing prophetic amongst us too. So here we go. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So Jesus, the, 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 the one who is God, actually puts a lot on us to take the initiative to connect to him. He says, come to me. So we all want the rest, but he says, come. Take my yoke. We all want to get rid of you know, heavy yokes, anxieties, fears, burdens. But he says, you, 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 want, you need to take mine, which means take off yours. That's something that, that, that we are involved in doing. There's a great offer here of rest. There's a great offer <coughs> to release us from our burdens, but 
he's putting something on us to do in order to achieve this place of, of harmony and union with him. Now remember, he's already in us, but he's not forcing himself upon us. He's still looking for us to lean in, to take his yoke, to come to him. And uh, learn from me, that's something we do, we learn from him. All right, he's not going to put some needle in your brain and inject every thought you need to know and you just go around going, and now I know how God works. No, you're actually in a learning process. You are a disciple is the way the Bible talks about it. You're learning from him in daily life. <clears throat> for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. That, that last phrase is one of the most challenging when you think about how Jesus actually behaves. He didn't say he's gentle and lowly in his actions. He says he's gentle and lowly in heart. So this is the, this is the guy who was a powerful leader. And who, I mean, in the context of this verse actually, is just declared woe to Capernaum and woe to Bethesda. I mean, it's not this kind of marshmallow kind of character. It's just... He's just declared these woes to these towns where he's been and done miracles and said, basically, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than you guys. I mean, this is not a popular message. And yet he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. This is the guy that made a, a whip and went through the temple and turned over, it turned over the, the, the tables of the money changers and he, and he chased them out. This is the guy that, that said, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you uh, peddlers of the law, woe, woe to you. You put burdens on men that they cannot bear and you don't lift a finger to do it yourself. This is the guy when he came to his own town and they didn't receive him. He received him. His parting message was, uh, <coughs> Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I mean, this guy nailed it. You knew what he thought. Yet he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. When the demoniac comes at him, he, he, he rebukes the spirits that are in him. When the storm comes at him, he's asleep in the boat. And then the disciples get a bit freaked out. And he stands and he rebukes the storm. This is a powerful leader. This is a guy with authority. And then they listen to him speaking. Um, <laughs> this is uh, Matthew 7. We're going to refer to a number of scriptures on the way through. A bit of a Bible study. And um, When Jesus finished these sayings, it, it, some of you will remember the story where he says, talks about the wise man building his house on the rock. Yeah, and the other one on sand and the flood comes. And the whole point of the story is, if you listen to me and do what I say, you're smart. My translation, but that's, but you're wise if you listen to me and do what I say. And they say to him, wow, this is astonishing teaching. He teaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes. So he's teaching with authority and to the point of confidence that you will be smart if you do what I say. You're like, wow, what is this guy on? Well, he's on being Jesus is what he's on. He's, but he's gentle and lonely in heart. With him you find rest for your souls. And you could mistake what he's doing for what's inside of him. 
If you were a money changer, at the end of that event, you may be going like, oh, such a tough guy. And his words were accompanied by works that pointed to this authority. In, in Mark 1, it says, the unclean spirit, it convulsed and cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what's this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. His words were accompanied by works that pointed to his authority. He didn't just say things in an authoritative way. Actually, he was accompanied by signs and wonders that established this man as authority to say what he's saying. And even when he gets questioned about, there's this... There's this uh, who has authority to forgive sins? Do you remember that story? And there's the paralytic who gets let down in the roof. And the, the, and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees are like, well, you know. He says, just to show you I've got authority to forgive sins, arise, take up your bed and walk. He doesn't give them a theological treatise on why he can do it because he's the son of God. He doesn't give them an apologetic. He doesn't, he doesn't write them a long letter saying, or even give them one from Heavenly Father. He says, this is Heavenly Father's letter. Rise, take up your bed and walk. His authority is being established by the demonstrations that happen around him. That's scary. That's why they say to him, well, whose authority are you doing this? And he doesn't answer them. He says, well, if, <laughs> if, you, if you tell me whose authority John functioned under, I'll tell you whose Authority, I'm functioning. <laughs> so his words were accompanied by works of authority, but he is the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, with whom, in union with whom, we find rest for our souls. The one who rebukes the storm, the one who casts out the demons, the one who raises the dead with the word, the, the, the one, the one who, who casts out the money changers with the whip, he gives rest to the soul. Because his heart is gentle and lowly. <laughs> he actually taught and forbade the use of authority over men. He actually stood up one day, he was talking, I think the disciples were having some debate about, you know, who's the greatest amongst us. We want to be in charge, and, and they have these stories, these stories in the Bible about them, like even sending their mom to say, "Can my sons be the, the top guys in the kingdom?" So there's this kind of competition thing going on, and Jesus says, he called them aside, and he says, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them." That's the phrase he uses. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, so he doesn't say don't be great. And sometimes we read that, it's like, don't be great then. No, he said, be great, but don't be great that way. So he actually forbids the exercise of authority over them. He says, no, be great, but you must be a servant to be that great.
If you look through the New Testament, there's only one place where it says that a human has authority over another human. And it's actually in the bedroom of a married couple. It says the wife has authority over the husband's body and the body has authority over the wife's body. There, is, there isn't another place. It, it's forbidden here, but there's not a place where it's expressed. Go study that on your own time, okay? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7 if you want to find it out. So Jesus is demonstrating his authority Get clear on this. He has authority and he's demonstrating it in his teaching. He's commanding demons. He's healing the sick. He's calming storms. He's issuing commands to people. He gives clear job descriptions to his disciples. He says, don't take money. Don't take a staff. Don't take a bag. Go heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the leper. That's a a clearer job description than most of the ones we have in our current office. I mean, that's just, you know what you're supposed to do, eh? But you will find rest for your soul. Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. Some people think that the Godhead is hierarchical. So there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father's in charge, and God the Son sort of bows the knee a bit to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is, is the runaround of the Trinity. So if it's possible for God to have authority over God, we therefore wrongly conclude that it's alright for people to have authority over people. So a hierarchical trinity concept bleeds into the church a hierarchical idea of what leadership and authority looks like. For all the authority that Jesus exercised, carried, and spoke, I don't believe he was being over people. And I don't believe that The Father is over the Son and the Son over the Spirit. Actually, it's family trinity. It's a relational trinity. If Jesus was always doing, if Jesus had to submit to God the Father, he wouldn't be God. If you always had to submit to another person, because they were kind of better than you, that would undermine your, who you are created to be in the image of God. Yeah, just let that one land for a moment. <laughs> Genesis 1, God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. And he did tell them to rule over stuff. He said, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, subdue the planet. Yeah? But he didn't make one of them over the other. And then he planted a tree in the garden and he said, this, is, this tree here, 
Don't touch this one. All the others you can, you can touch. And he didn't make it a particularly nasty looking tree. He didn't plant it somewhere way out of view. He didn't put an angel in front of it with a flaming sword. There was no barbed wire, flashing lights, warning signs, no entries, nothing. It was just a tree like any other tree that looked attractive for food, and that was the one, don't eat. So he issues an authoritative command to the people he's made in his image, with whom he's not issued any, uh, let's see, they're a partnership, not a hierarchy. Because they are made in his image. So they have equal value. Jesus has the same value as the Father, has the same value of the Spirit. I don't think it's possible for Jesus to do his own thing. He and the Father are one. Submission, as we understand it, does not function in the Trinity because it's not possible for one part of the Trinity to have a different idea to the other. Try this side. We tend to read ourselves into them rather than trying to learn who they are and let that influence us. We are made in their image, they're not made in ours. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not a hierarchical trinity. There's no possibility of Jesus having a different idea to the Father. You say, but he struggled in the garden and said, not my will but yours. Yeah, but remember he was also 100% man. It's 100% possible that your humanity wants to do something different to what God wants. So back to the garden. There's a tree. Here's two humans made in the image of God. Why is there a tree that they can't have that's as accessible as all the other trees that they can have? Why, why is it not patrolled by heavenly police? See, God is the most powerful leader that exists. He's not short of anything. He has too much of everything. And that's why he made us, because he's overflowing with goodness. He hasn't enough space to put all the love that he has, so he just, boom, there you are. There's Catherine, because God, God's just full of love. He's got to find another place to express it, so we get a Catherine. We get a David Bell, an awesome person in the image of Christ. It's like, wow. But God just can't help himself because he's so full, he has no room to put everything he has. So he makes you and pours himself in. And a bit like those sweeties that kept reproducing themselves in the miracle the other week, it's like, doesn't matter how many he gives away, he still has as many as he started with because he's God. That's what infinity looks like. There's never a reduction there's only increase in the act of giving. <laughs> because of the way God is, he's overflowing. He already has too much stuff that he can't, he's got no room for, so he gives it away. But in the giving away, in the creative activity, in the generosity of his heart, actually he just increases. I mean, how can God get bigger? I don't... Don't go there. All right. It's just his capacity to bless 
and be present fully with every person that ever exists never decreases no matter how many people exist. Just because there's another billion people going to be born on the planet doesn't mean you're going to get less of him. Yeah, but you know, there's so many more needy people than me. Probably so, but that makes no difference to how much he wants to give you. Because he can meet their needs fully and still have as much as he started with for you. That, that, was, that was worth listening to for a few minutes. <laughs> uh, so, here we are with the tree. We're still stuck at the tree. The most powerful influential leader, God, makes it possible for the people created in his image to make a wrong choice without any coercion. There were no landmines. You know, as, as Eve reaches up to take the forbidden fruit, there's no sword from an angel that cuts her hand off and says, remember what he said. He puts the destiny of all creation in the hands of these two people and then gives them the option to blow it and doesn't interrupt them as they are blowing it. So here's Jesus walking around the planet being fully God, demonstrating all of Godness to the planet in a way that it's never seen before because he is the exact image of the invisible God. So demons flee. Teaching has authority. People are raised from the dead. Blind eyes are opened. Demons are, are gone. Storms are calmed. God is walking the planet in undiluted form. And he's not constraining himself so you feel more comfortable with him. So, well, I'm not going to tell my hometown that they dishonored me because that would upset them. No, he's just like, but I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Because he never made anybody do anything. There's always a tree in the garden. With Jesus, there's always a tree in the garden. Come, follow me. Option, follow. Option one, follow. Option two, don't follow. He's not forcing you to follow him because he's gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. There is no coercion in the heart of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is passion. There is clarity. There is authority. There is leadership. But there is no coercion. This is the way I'm going, disciples. Follow me. And they left their nets and followed it. But they didn't have to. You don't have to. You can eat the tree. You really can. You can. We can blow our lives up if we want to. We don't have to. This is a leadership model of Jesus. You have options. There's always options. Because he is not coercive in his leadership style. But that doesn't mean he's not authoritative. To be authoritative does not equal to be authoritarian. 
God is ultimate authority, but he's not authoritarian because he's looking for voluntary heart response because that equals love rather than coercion out of fear because he's bigger and louder and stronger. And Now, Jesus was, in one sense, big, loud, and strong. The thing is not to misread that as coercion. And, and I've said that a couple of times here. It, Sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm really passionate about a subject. That doesn't mean I'm trying to make you do it. It just means I'm really passionate about it. You are free. I want you to think. And I know I say things that make you think, and I do that on purpose. But don't hear passion as coercion. And if you feel coerced, I really am trying not to coerce you, okay? Please forgive me and do not respond to that feeling inside yourself because that isn't Holy Spirit. Our goal as leadership is to help you lean into Holy Spirit. Because if you get coerced, if you get overwhelmed, you start to not hear Holy Spirit and you just hear the voice of people that are telling you what to do. And that is dangerous. I actually, we, we used to do a thing called foundation course here, and we always used to talk about this, and I slightly regret that we don't, but we always used to end up talking about <clears throat> the scripture in, in 1 Timothy, which I've got here, I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 1.19, holding on to faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of your faith. We would get people come in our environment, they've been in highly authoritarian church environments. And we were at pains to say, yes, we do leadership, but what we do not want here is that you violate your faith and conscience. What you think is really, really important. And if you violate your conscience because you heard me or us say it, that is actually bad news for you as well as us. That's the heartbeat of this leadership. Not that we won't say, yes, we're doing this and this is what we're convinced about, but there's nothing in us wants you to violate what's in your conscience. That's unhealthy, that's controlling, that's death to your faith ultimately. Now, are we going to be passionate? Are we going to be clear? Of course we are, but there's nothing about that that we want to be interpreted as coercion. Does this make sense? And I think that's why Jesus was going around being powerful and then said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your soul. Because he's like, I'm not making you do anything. I will do you good. Hang around with me. It's going to be better for you. But you don't have to. There's there's a story that I love and I'm puzzled by. (laughs) We're doing okay. We're doing good. Everybody okay? Just kind of. You can fake it. I like it if you fake it at this question. (laughs) See, God's goal is that you're like Him, which is powerful. That's why He comes to live inside you, not to make you a victim. Yeah, we'll go with this. What happens if you start to violate your inner conscience? If you don't choose, because what happens is then you don't hear Holy Spirit for yourself. 
So the goal of all good leadership is that Christ, the Christ who is in you gets more formed in you. I know that sounds like attention, or, but actually both are true in Scripture. He is fully in you, but he's being formed in you. And the goal of all good leadership, teaching, etc., is that the Christ who is in you is more formed in you. That you become more Christ-like, not because you perform better, but because you submit and yield to his presence in your life better. Because you know his voice better. That's why we teach from the Bible. Because the Bible has the voice, is the voice of God. So you start to recognize the resonance of his tone. Because in the scripture, it's already there. And then when you hear the scripture, then you hear that tone internally. You go like, oh, it's him. So the goal of a Bible teacher is not for you to be impressed with his knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. But that for help you connect to the teacher who is already inside of you. Now, Hebrew and Greek knowledge can help because there are some off-the-ball ideas in the body of Christ based on what people think the Bible says rather than what the Bible says. So don't misunderstand me dissing that. But it's what the goal is. I know there's a lot to think about, lots of homework, but that's a good thing, all right? If you violate the voice of the Spirit in you, if you violate the conscience of God inside of you, then you could become resentful because you feel you've been coerced. And when you allow that to happen, you've given some of your power away. You made a choice. Now, you can blame others, and sometimes it is the fault of the environment in the way that it exercises authority, but fundamentally, you get to choose whether you keep your power or not. I would recommend keep it. Don't become a victim to other people's forcefulness. If you do, you end up resenting them, the environment. Okay. You end up with immaturity because... If other people are making all the powerful choices for you, you never learn to do them yourself. That's unhealthy. But there are certainly environments I'm aware of in the Christian world that function that way and they get big that way because sadly for some of us, we actually want to be told what to do. We want to be told what to do. We want to be told what to think because that's easier, it's less responsibility on us. But when God made you and said, rule over the fish of the sea and the whole planet, he gave you responsibility to change the world. There's no getting off of that. But what he did give you is the equipment to do it. He didn't say, go do it because you're a worm. He said, go do it because you're awesome. If you violate this, you end up having double think. You're like, oh, I think that's what the Holy Spirit's saying, but... Oh, there's this other voice. I've actually prayed with people who've had the biggest voice in their head has been the leader of the environment they used to be in. Just to break that off. That is not our goal in this environment. Our goal is the biggest voice in your heartbeat is the Holy Spirit. That you have a clear conscience before God and before man and that you become a powerful person responsible for who you are and what you do and your own actions. The scary thing about that is you can't blame other people. 
Do, do you see where that goes? It's like, well, I'm awesome. I'm powerful. That means they're my choices. That means they're my outcomes. It's not the fault of the environment now. It's actually me. And then the environment is there for you to shape, not for you to be shaped. Well, if only it was more. Well, then make it more. You're powerful. If only we had more. Well, then give them more. Because probably the thing that's bugging you is actually the thing you're gifted to change. Can I say a bit more about that? Remember Danny's swimming pool analogy spoke to us about creating a culture and we generate momentum by all walking together. Our momentum is going to increase as more of us become powerful and say, this is the environment we want. We don't have this yet. We don't have this yet. But we are going to do our best to give our best to introduce those lacks, make up for those lacks in this environment. We're not going to say, that person should have done it, that person should have done it, that person should have done it. Because maybe they were actually taking responsibility for another bit of the swimming pool. Take responsibility for your bit of the swimming pool. Some people may not love me at the end of this, but you know what? You get to choose. Victims say other people made me do it. It's someone else's job to change me or change the environment. Actually, powerful people realize they've been equipped to make a change. (laughs) And I think in our view of honor, as we've taught honor, and we didn't do our old foundation course for a while, I wonder if sometimes our view of honor has overwhelmed our view of you're free to make a choice. Like, honor becomes like we all just got to do what we're told. No, that's not what honor is. That's misunderstanding something which can happen. So I'm trying to clear up a misunderstanding if nothing else right now, yeah? So honoring isn't like we always just do what we're told. No, that isn't actually what this is about at all. Powerful yeses and nos are the activity of powerful people made in the image of God, which is who you are. <laughs> the goal is authority, as I understand it, is not for, to be over people, but for people. We have authority over demons and sickness and storms, and we do have authority over that stuff, but we don't have it over one another unless you're in the bedroom with your wife, which that is a study for another time. That... <laughs> But that is in the, the only bit of the Bible that says that, just being thorough, okay? Moving on, the, the, the point is, because you've all gone off somewhere else now, that was, anyhow, the, oh Jesus, take me home right now, just, 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 just give me a minute to land, I told you it could be a crash landing, I'm trying to get the landing gear down and it's just not working. Um, <laughs> Uh. All right, last, last Jesus story. Oh. All right, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> you, you, you made a choice, that's fine. Uh, we, we're going to uh, find some water. 
Do you remember the feeding of 5,000? And they sat on the green grass in groups of 50. It actually says he commanded them to sit in groups of 50. Like, really? That sounds like he's got authority over people. Do you see what I mean? It's like, you 10,000 people sit in groups of 50 on the green grass. That's what he says. He commanded them. They're like, yes, sir. What's going on? Well, first of all, I don't, think, I don't think anybody did this, but you could have said, not on your Nelly, Jesus, and walked off. There was nobody there with swords or guns to make you do what he was saying should be done. Yeah? You still had a choice. The thing is, nobody knows what's going to happen. We've read the story. We know what happens next, but they don't. They're just sitting there hungry listening to him. It says, sit in groups of 50 and they're like, okay, now what? I don't know. He said sit in groups of 50 on the green grass. That seems to be important because in two scriptures, no idea why. And they're waiting and they're hungry. And then a miracle happens and, and bread and fish multiply. Isn't that exciting? So did he take authority over them or did they voluntarily respond to his direction? I would posit the latter because he had generated trust. So I don't think he overrode anybody's conscience. I think they trusted Jesus to go with him on this miracle journey, which they didn't know the end of. So they said, okay, Jesus, we've been with you for a day here and we're getting hungry, but you seem pretty cool. We trust you enough to go and sit in groups of 50. He had a relational connection to a thousands of people because it established a dimension of trust to them so they could respond not because they were being overruled but because they willingly had confidence to step into what he was saying I believe that way is how Jesus Jesus exercised authority for people they got fed but he generated there was a confidence connection there was a trust connection people to Jesus, Jesus to people, which meant that he could lead them in a non-authoritarian fashion. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, Father, we just thank you that uh, there's no hierarchy in heaven, but there is order, there is not chaos, there is leadership, there is submission that is voluntary, and we just thank you for the beautiful nature of your kingdom. And, and we ask you to keep giving us wisdom how to do it right here on the earth. Amen.